0: Hello ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the UX World, the practical voice podcast. This week's episode is brought to you by Mobile UX London, the Europe's uh, most forward-thinking UX and design conference. It's looking at uh, augmented reality, virtual reality, and of course there's a voice piece in there as well. It's on the 20th of November, it's in central London, and if you go to mobileuxlondon.com, you can save 20 percent on your ticket if you use the promo code VUXWORLD. Do check it out. I'm going to be there myself, so I'm looking forward to seeing you all there. Do come and find me and do call me. I'm really, really excited to meet more and more of our listeners uh, of VUXWORLD, so MobileUXLondon.com. Check it out. Today's guest is John Kelvey, CEO and founder of Bespoken. Uh, Dustin and I get deep into all things testing with John we have done testing in the past we've co- we've done episodes on, um, on testing but we focus more on the usability side so kind of like one on one testing testing the experience with real users and things like that this episode is probably more, one more for you developers out there because we're looking at testing and quality assurance from the kind of coding side of things so we're going to be talking about unit testing what unit testing is why it's important and how it can save you a whole load of time when you're developing your voice experiences we're going to be talking about end-to-end testing and quality assurance so for those people who are working in QA we're going to be talking about how you can test and automate testing of quality assurance in the voice space and then we're going to be talking also about continuous testing so this is when you're in kind of like maintenance mode how you can keep on top and make sure that your voice application is always performing as it should be. This is seriously an immense episode. We get into some supreme detail and the conversation is absolutely fantastic. And then at the end also we start talking more broadly a little bit about the voice space in general and John's got some really good observations about why perhaps focusing on conversational interfaces at this moment in time might not be the right thing to do and perhaps focusing on more the request and response and jobs to be done is probably where you're going to have more success. But we get into detail about that and you can see for yourself. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, this is VUX World. John Kelvey, welcome to VUX World.
1: Well, thanks a lot for having me. I'm really happy to be here.
0: No problem. And Dustin, hello there.
2: Hey Kane, how's it going?
0: Yeah, well. So John, tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about Bespoken for those those people listening who may not be aware of Bespoken. What is Bespoken? And and tell us a little bit about yourself as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Thanks for having me on here, first of all. Um, So... Uh, Bespoken is a company that focuses on building testing and monitoring tools for voice apps. Uh, We have been in existence officially since April of last year, and then unofficially since really 2016. Uh, I had started a company going back to 2012 uh, that was based around speech recognition. And so what we were actually doing was Uh, We called interactive audio ads. So these were uh, advertisements uh, that would come on if you're listening to services like Slacker or Spotify or NPR, some sort of audio or music experience on your phone. Uh, After a song might play, one of our ads would come on and it would say something like, uh, if you'd like to get two pizzas for $10, say call now. And you could respond and say, call now, and we'd connect you to a pizza place. Uh, And so we were really totally immersed in voice, in speech recognition, uh, built out, you know, large scale speech recognition system for this. um, And uh, all of it on mobile. And based on that experience, you know we got really interested and i in particular i was the cto of that company got very interested in what was happening with alexa um, and alexa obviously part of it is speech recognition but more than that we just saw it as this this kind of shift to uh, an ai based operating system which i i thought was really fascinating um, and there are some other big changes with it uh, around you know you're not running on a device instead you're You know it's all callbacks it's all on servers and so overall we as bespoken saw this as a you know as a new development platform and people would need new tooling to really work with it Uh, and then within that uh, in particular we saw a need for uh, people to really be able to do good testing good monitoring uh, of voice-based applications and that's really been our focus um you know we're pleased we've gotten uh, good deal of traction in the market. We've got uh more than two thousand developers that are using our stuff. We've got uh, more than a thousand apps that we monitor. We've raised uh over two point four million dollars for our company, um, you know, and gotten some great customers. Um so it's 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 been fun being in the space and uh it's been fun for me personally to sort of see it develop.
0: Hmm. Yeah, congratulations on that. Seeing the uh, the announcement for raising that money, that's that's fantastic news that, isn't it?
1: Yeah, we're delighted by it.
0: So, there's two, there's two things. One thing you mentioned AI operating system. So, I, I want to kind of dig into what you mean by that. But first of all, I can see behind you you've got the uh the traditional bespoken llama. What? I've always wondered this because I've seen this on Twitter constantly whenever you go to events and that you take all the kind of teddies and stuff like that <laughs> so, tell us tell us why well, I've always wanted to ask you this why a lama
1: well so we are based in Peru I should also mention I, and most people don't look at me um probably stereotyping unfairly but they don't look at me and say gee you look like you're from Peru um but uh when we were starting this company 2 years ago I was looking, having done other startups, I was looking for, you know, uh, capital efficient areas uh, uh, to build the company. And Peru, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of good development talent here and we're able to put together a great team and do great stuff here um, and relocate here pretty easily. My wife is originally from Peru, which is another uh, thing to sort of informed that decision. So since we decided to base the company in Peru, I mean it is a country that's well known for llamas, and so we use this as our as our logo, and uh, it's been a great success. I will say at times, it's made me wonder if our best product market fit is not to just distribute plush llama toys because <laughs> we just went to this Voice Summit conference, and uh, I, we got great response at our table. You know, we had a table in this exhibitors area um and some great customers there but i i mean almost every person at the conference whether or not they cared at all about voice apps or testing and monitoring they wanted we had these little llama toys everyone wanted a llama toy and uh, yeah i mean it was it was a big success we we really
0: had to start rationing them out (laughs) (laughs) have you did you manage to pick up a llama toy dustin
2: Oh, yeah, I got one. Oh, I, I so usually don't jealous. pick up swag, but I, I <laughs> I'm said i going to be pretty shameless about this one and just, just grab it.
0: I need one. I definitely need one of those. So you mentioned, John, the, the shift to an AI operating system. We'll dig into the details and Bespoken, of Bespoken in a moment, but I'm wondering if you can just kind of define what you mean and tell us a little bit more about what you mean by an AI operating system.
1: Yeah, I mean, we see this as... Uh, fundamentally the biggest change around developing for voice uh, as well as designing for it. Um, and also, you know, when you think about the longer implications, I think it's also a really interesting aspect and in, um, how things will kind of shape up over time. Uh, but what does that mean? Technically, I mean, traditionally, I mean, as developers, we're working with APIs and we're, you know, and so, essentially instructing the machine what to do. Um, In the case of working with something like Alexa, instead what we're doing is we're, we're saying, here are the things that our users can do. And you interpret what they're saying or what they're messaging. If they've actually asked for that, you know, what is the user's intent? And then you tell us and that, it it makes some things a lot simpler because it, it can remove a lot of work that you might have to do otherwise. Um but then also you have this whole uh open-ended aspect of did it make that interpretation correctly? Um and you as a developer trying to fine-tune it and make sure that it is understanding that user's intent correctly. Um so that that shift is um you know it's it's really uh it really creates some some different challenges that I think people are still just getting their head around
0: and so that's where bespoken fits in then is that if if kind of we're leaving it up to let's say Alexa to determine um whether a user has said a particular thing bespoken then is something that you can use to check whether or not Alexa has understood that user intent correctly. Is that right?
1: Yeah. In terms of how we fit in with that, uh, we see uh, the testing aspect to make sure that the behavior is what you think it is as being much more important. So uh, if you take the speech recognition system, people might uh, have, no, you know, a number of different accents. They're communicating in different languages. They might be using different idioms. All of those things can affect the ability to translate what the user is saying to that intent, you know, uh, that you as the developer are then working with. Uh, ensuring that that's all working correctly, it's, it's critical from a QA perspective. It also goes to the basic usability of these applications. Um, And so that's what we're really trying to help people with. It's not that testing, um, I mean, obviously testing has always been something of primary concern for any type of app development when you're talking about mobile or web, Uh, but we see as you move into this sort of AI based universe, that testing becomes more important. Uh, We see it as even having almost primacy over the writing of code because the code is, you're able to offload some of the work from the code to the AI and its interpretation of intents. But then you have to test and make sure that it's doing that correctly, and um, you know using tools like ours is very helpful for that.
0: Hmm. And we'll we'll get into some of those testing things in a minute. But before we do, what you mentioned there that that having an AI operating system presents um, presents challenges, and presumably one of those challenges is is keeping on top of that testing which you've kind of mentioned if if you if you've minimized your code and you kind of kind of outsourced that if you like to to Alexa or the or the, the voice kind of AI to handle what other kind of challenges present themselves if you when you're working in a, a kind of AI based operating system
1: um well so the stuff that's out there now that I think people are you know trying to deal with i mean it's stuff like accents You know, I mean, there was a study that was uh, done by the Washington Post in which they're showing that uh, the performance for Alexa and Google is much worse if somebody has, say, a Spanish accent, um, which is a very common thing in the U.S. Um, Dealing with things like that, uh, obviously dealing with different languages is tough. Um, Idioms, which, you know, if sort of different turns of phrase. I mean, that gets into more of, you know, you're going away from the speech recognition into the natural language understanding part of things. Um, that also, I think is a challenge, especially if you have a more conversational type of interaction. Um, in general, like looking past where we are today, I mean, you know, first you really need to have great speech recognition. And I would say the speech recognition today is excellent. But there's areas where it needs to improve and i think everyone who's working with voice apps um you know they're trying to optimize for that but then the next natural thing is to really get into more of the natural language um and as people start to rely more on natural language as the systems become more sophisticated around you know applying machine learning and you know right now for alexa example you know for example it's it's fairly explicit i mean you're basically saying okay, these phrases then map to this particular intent on behalf of the user. And it does some stuff, some magic behind the scenes as does Google to, you know, say things that, uh, or to figure out things that are not explicitly mapped um, and figure out the intent behind them. Uh, There's not, there's not a lot of that today, but in five years, we expect that that natural language will be far more sophisticated. Maybe, you know, probably even in two years. And then that becomes another thing that you really need to, you know, okay, that's great. So the the AI has figured that out for me, but how do I know, how do I know what's performing correctly? How do I ensure that, uh, again, you're taking something that was a development task and you're turning into something that's really a testing task. Uh, That's how we sort of see it. So there's, there's these challenges today, which we see sort of centered around the speech recognition, but then over time, you know, the, we see that the speech recognition is going to get better, but then you're going to have more stuff around the NLU. um, And just generally uh, the AI taking on more work. And then how do you ensure that as it takes on that work, it's doing it correctly.
0: Hmm. Okay. So can you explain a little bit about how bespoken would fit into a a kind of a, a voice design slash development project and, and whereabouts in that sort of workflow would you kind of use bespoke and how does it kind of all all work
1: yeah absolutely uh so we really focus on automation and so what does that mean uh we try to take any manual steps out of the process uh that's that's really the key thing for us there are you know um, there's a variety of different types of testing that are typically needed. Um, but for us, it's about, okay, we provide a really easy way uh, to ensure that your skill or, uh, action is working correctly, uh, without having to do anything manually. That's really our goal. So for example, if you're testing a skill and let's say it's a skill that's like a grocery list, um, you can set up tests with us where you type things out and you say, uh, add bananas to my list. So you just, you write that out and then you write out another part. That's just uh, would say, okay, I added bananas to the list. So a very simple uh, type of case here. Um, and what we would do is we would actually take the text of what you wanted to say. We turn that into speech. We send that to Alexa Uh, Alexa then sends it on to a skill. Uh, The skill comes back with a response. We turn that back into text and compare it to an expected response. Um, And hopefully that all makes sense. The key thing that we're really doing there to make the automation all work is it's, uh, you know, I like to call it crossing the sonic barrier, but you just, you know, getting the text into audio and then, in the response, the audio back into text. Once you do that, everything else really follows pretty easily. And it's funny, I mean, it's it's hard to get across that barrier. But once you do, it's almost a lot easier to test a voice app than it is, say, like a web app. Um, you know, your typical HTML page is actually rather complicated. It might have several different uh, buttons and forms to be filled out or fields to be filled out. With voice, it's... It's a it's a single sentence that somebody is saying, you know. And the response back, I mean, the response back can be more multifaceted, but typically it comes back to a reply that's a sentence or a paragraph from the machine. Uh, so once you can get past the whole speech part, uh, you can really test that very effectively. Um, and using our tools, you can set up tests. Uh, I mean, for our customers, I think it takes them a little bit longer because they have to, you know, learn how to use our stuff. We try to make it as easy as possible, but there's still some learning curve. I mean, for us internally to set up tests for people, I mean, we can do, you know, simple to medium skills in less than half a day and really test them pretty well. Um, So it's a nice thing. Um, And once you have those things set up, you can just run it whenever you want and you make sure that the skill is still working correctly.
2: I'm really interested to hear more. You talked about crossing the sonic barrier and how it takes care of that for you. How are you you doing that?
1: So we take text uh, and then we use actually Amazon Polly just to turn the text into speech. Um, So it's, it's actually, it's not too hard. And then we take that audio and we interact with Alexa or Google assistant as if we were one of the devices. So if you use our software, it actually shows up as if you'd bought a new Echo,
0: Hmm.
1: Um, except it's purely a software based device. So we take those two things where we have our own virtual client um, and then we have this text-to-speech piece, and that—that that is what allows us to bridge it.
2: And is that using the Alexa voice service? Then it so is. It's, it's yeah.
1: yeah, and it's it, conceptually it's really simple. We do run into challenges in that you know AVS and Google Assistant SDK—they're both built to be embedded. Mm. Um, they're not built to be you know, services that are just put into a web page or put into a web service like ours. And so there's there's just some hurdles that we have to kind of go through to, to imitate being a device and a piece of hardware. Um, but conceptually, it's pretty simple.
2: Are there any, is there any functionality for either of the platforms that you can't handle through these uh, because of these limitations?
1: Um, there's things that we haven't implemented. Um, you know, we don't deal with the events, for example. But that's that's actually more. Um, we could, mm-hmm. we could. Uh, it just it hasn't been a great concern for our customers, and um,
0: you know, it is
1: it is technically more complicated. But you know, the full array of functionality is available to us. Um, it 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 really is just like you know, the echo that's sitting on your desk, but uh, you know, it, it exists just in software. And
2: and going back to the, because you use poly, can you specify in your test, I want to test this as a German man or an Indian woman?
1: Yeah, that is a key thing. So, uh, you know, with poly and with generated speech, you can test a heck of a lot of scenarios so i was saying like okay you want to test different accents you want to test different genders uh, you want to test idioms um, all these different things you can do all that using just written uh, written out tests and poly with these different accents uh, and different languages which is great and that gets you a great deal of coverage now i will say something that we've started looking at uh, with our probably most sophisticated customers is okay going beyond generated speech and actually using recorded audio either stuff that comes from a crowdsource system or out of production system that's not something everybody needs but over time if you know we do we are really immersed in this world of testing uh you know having real audio samples that gets you to that next level mm-hmm. um which for really critical use cases, uh, it's immensely beneficial. Uh, but for most people, the generate speech, it does great. And for example, if you're rolling a skill out in Japan and you don't have any uh, Japanese speakers on your team, it's a really great way to get that testing done.
0: So does that actually... Will that do with the translation then for you, does it?
1: No, no, it won't. Uh, you know, so... What you need to do is, or at least what we do for that in terms of testing a skill that does support Japanese is there's some process of, uh, I mean, the way we do it is use Google Translate to come up with the text, run it through, look at the response that comes back, put that back into Google Translate, see if it was a response that makes sense for the skill, and then iterate in that way. Um, But we have successfully tested skills in Japanese, for example, where none of us... Understands the the written language. <laughs> None of us speaks it, uh, but we've been able to put together a thorough set of tests, which I think is uh, rather remarkable.
0: Yeah. The um, you mentioned the example you give initially was like a shopping list skill. Yeah. So using that using that example, I'm curious to to see how like what you will get back sort of thing. So for example, let's say we've got a shopping list skill and the example yeah. you, you give was add bananas, for example. So the response we'd expect back from that is success. We've added bananas to the shopping list kind of thing. So would you, for the for setting up the testing and then for, for how you would kind of validate that testing, would you kind of just come up with a whole lot of different ways that somebody can add bananas to a shopping list? And then would you need to specify the response that you intend to get back and then when you get that back, what does it do? Does it just kind of pick out the, the results that weren't as expected or do you need to kind of go through each phrase to to kind of manually check that it's, that it's the response that you'd expect back?
1: Um, so we do, you know, for any input, for any uh, utterance that you might make to the skill, we'll have an expected response and we'll confirm that it's correct. We'll confirm other things. You know, we actually can look at things like the display information that comes back, that comes back in a JSON payload typically. And so we, you know, you can pull that data out and write tests against that as well. Um, It's actually, it's very straightforward to do, Um, you know, but for every utterance. Yeah. I mean, if you're, you know, going to test 20 different items that you might add to your shopping list, you know, if if every item you want to make sure that it's actually recognizing it correctly, um, you know, you'd write each one of those out and you'd confirm that for each one it comes back with that correct response. That yes, I added grapes. Yes, I added, you know, uh, hand sanitizer. Uh, each value you can check and you confirm that the response is what it should be.
0: Okay. So you so you would need to, for, for everything that you put through it, you need to, to check those kind of manually one by one when it comes back. Is that right? Yeah. That is right. And yeah.
1: You know, I'm focusing here, what I'm describing is what we refer to as end-to-end testing. And we do, we do have a slightly more granular view of the world. It's not all just end-to-end testing. We offer tooling for unit testing. Uh, we offer th- something that we call continuous testing. Um, what's the distinction between these different things? Well, unit testing is about making sure code works correctly. And that's something we offer to developers. Another thing that we uh, were very pleased to announce recently is that you know Amazon is actually including our unit tests into their sample projects, uh, which we think is really cool. Um, and that, that just, that makes sure that that code is right. And um, it's really something to help developers. When you're talking about end-to-end testing, it does come down to, okay, let's assume that the code is working correctly. I mean, ideally the developer's written unit tests that make sure that the logic is right, you know, so that whether somebody says bananas or oranges or whatever, uh, with your unit test, you're ensuring that goes into the list and maybe it goes into a database or whatever. All that's been checked with the unit test. The goal of your end-to-end test then becomes, let me make sure that it understands correctly what I'm saying. You know, let me make sure that that speech recognition part is functioning correctly. Let me make sure that NLU is working correctly. Um, and you don't, I mean, we're picking on the shopping list case. You don't need to try or test every piece of fruit out there, but maybe you, there is a problem with recognizing hand sanitizer. That's a trickier phrase. Um, you know, or maybe it sounds like something else and it gets misrecognized. That's where you really want to concentrate your end-to-end testing. Um, and then the continuous testing part of the monitoring that I mentioned, that's really about, okay, now that my skill has gone live, you know, and I've put something out there, let me test it on an ongoing basis. And it's not going to be the same depth of testing. You know, you wouldn't try a hundred different items to add to a cart as part of that, but you try one conversation, you know, open the skill up, let me add something to that list. Tell me what's on the list and then say goodbye. So you go through that conversation. If your skill works through that conversation correctly, when it's in production, that's a pretty good sign that it's working correctly overall. Uh, and so we said that's a really easy way to ensure, uh, essentially the quality of it on an ongoing basis. So Those are the sort of three things that we do. And that's, you know, each one, you know, when we're talking to people, each one of those aspects has a, a particular place. And each one um, is meant to do something important.
0: And just quickly, I think it'd be useful to f- to figure out which, at which point, those three bits of testing would be done. But I'm just curious. You mentioned there that you know you might run a test of a series of utterances, and and to just to check that what gets back is what's expected, and and to make sure the NLU understands it. What do you do if it doesn't? <laughs> Is there anything you can actually uh, do about question. that? Is there anything you can actually do about that? Or is that all on the Amazon side? Is, is that one of the is. challenges? I
1: mean, I, I, uh, there's not as much. I mean, having come from a speech recognition background, I'm, I was used to having a lot of levers and a lot of things I could do to solve issues that would come up. Um, with Alexa, there's not quite as many but definitely, I mean, you know, essentially what you're doing, you know, you have your interaction model. That's what describes the sort of speech recognition and the intent uh, mapping that you're doing. And you can, there's a lot of things you can do with that to improve it. Um, and you can, uh, you can put in different slot values. You can do post-processing to, to handle misinterpretations. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, a different ways that you can manipulate that and improve it. And it's also, you know, that process, uh, when you get into it, it is one of the reasons why it's actually really critical to have an automated framework. Um, this is something I became accustomed to having worked on speech recognition systems is that as you're making changes to try to tune the AI, you can't like, if you just change stuff, and then just test for one scenario you're really going to do yourself a disservice you need to then go back and look at you know run a whole set of scenarios and make sure that as you're fixing one thing you're not breaking something else and it really typically is an optimization problem you know you're not looking to solve things outright instead what you're looking to do is to have the best possible outcomes across many scenarios. So you know that you're not going to get every scenario perfect. There's going to be some things you kinda kinda live with that it maybe doesn't understand a certain accent as well as you might like, or certain phrase as well as you might like. But across all the phrases, across all the accents, you want to get the best range of outcomes. Um, And that's, you know, automation really helps with that. And as you're making changes and tuning that interaction model, you use that automation framework to be rerunning it and really ensuring that, um, okay, I see that in making these changes, I've improved the scenario I was worried about and I haven't harmed everything else.
0: Mm. So you mentioned then three types of testing, end-to-end testing, unit testing, continuous testing. What, where would those three types of testing feature? When would you use which type of testing? Is it sequential? Is it kind of you'd use them all at the same time? Like where does it all fit together within a project?
1: Uh, we do see it as a sequence. Uh, so the unit testing, you know, that is focused on developers. That is meant to be used as people are doing their initial coding, right? Um, it's really helpful for that. We have this uh I well people can't see the banner anyways but it, we use uh this picture of iron man in some of our marketing materials i mean we use it carefully because i don't want to offend marvel but we claim that unit testing will make you a 10x developer uh that's sort of this mythical idea that's out there uh I hope our claims are not too grandiose, but the reason why we say that is if you're using our unit testing tools, you can do all your testing locally on your laptop. So, you don't have to deploy out a lambda, you don't have to deploy out updates to an interaction model. You can do it all straight on your laptop, you know, write some code, uh, run in it, you know, some intents against it, see that it's working correctly, all that happening without having done any deployment. It's a massive time savings. Um, you can easily hook up a debugger to it. Um, I see a lot of developers, they, they're not able to use debuggers because they're deploying it out into the Lambda environment, which is very hard to debug. Um, again, if you're using our unit testing tools, uh, that's not the case. Instead, it's all just happening within your, uh, your IDE. So you can tie into that debugger. That can save you an immense amount of time. Um, I would claim half my success as a developer, whatever success I have had, uh, is due to good use of debuggers. (laughs) Um, Anyways, so the unit testing is really helpful during that development and debugging stage. End-to-end testing, we see that as being uh, something that's managed by QA people. Uh, We have built our tools so that they don't require programming expertise. Or programmers at all, so QA people are able to write the tests. They're able to manage them. They don't have to have any programming background, um, and so they, you know, they could start writing the tests. You know, before the code is done. Typically, it's it's done at the end of the development phase. Uh, you go through that cycle, and then uh, the continuous testing is done after it's live. So makes it through the QA phase. Everything's working well. Uh, now it's deployed out there and we want to make sure that it continues to work well, That there's not any production issues with it. Um, you know, and that there's not, um, you know, nothing is changing within the system that's causing it to break on an ongoing basis. So it really tracks nicely with the typical software life cycle that people are accustomed to.
2: And if I'm just a hobbyist developer, what level of testing do I need?
1: Uh, well, in practice, none. (laughs) I I, like, look, I, uh, I don't, I mean, having one of our big learnings in this space, I I feel like, uh, uh, this isn't just an interesting thing and I'm, uh, not, uh, not besmirching anyone, hopefully, but it's just, there's less unit testing and automated testing That i would say that goes on with the general audience of developers than i had thought i mean i've i'm kind of a maven for unit tests i have been for a long time but you know it's it's become apparent to me as we've worked in this space that that's not the case for probably the mainstream of developers and it's it's not necessary to write really in-depth unit tests uh, for them to function i think people will benefit from it um but it's um You know, for hobbyists, uh, you know, we don't see them doing a lot. Uh, We would, if they do wanna dip their toe into it, I would say try writing some end-to-end tests. It's pretty easy. Um, You know, uh, you can put it together after you're done with your project and you know, you can see that, okay, I, I know that it's working for these users and then I have this sort of artifact you know, I can use on an ongoing basis to try uh, to ensure the skills working correctly as I make little changes to it and so forth.
2: Do you see, obviously you're a a big uh, proponent of testing. Do you see testing making the development process actually easier?
1: I do. I do. And I should, I should be careful in saying, Oh, you know, hobbyists aren't doing any of it or they shouldn't, I hope it doesn't sound like I'm saying they shouldn't do it. I do think they should. I, I think that it really does accelerate development. Um, that's not, it's definitely not just some marketing. We really do. believe in that. Um, And I, I think my, my whole career as a programmer, I think is evidence of how it can accelerate development. Um, so it's, it's, it is immensely beneficial. Um, it, it's funny to me in talking to a lot of developers, a common refrain that I do hear, is they'll say stuff like, uh, you know, oh, I I don't have time to write unit tests, or I did write some unit tests, the QA people are welcome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just, I do think that that reveals that they're not um, necessarily really understanding how much it can help them. Because if, if you write unit tests and you do it well, it's not going to just save the QA people time and lead to, higher quality code. It's not just some long-term investment. It's going to like that day or, you know, within that first week, it's going to be accelerating your development. You're going to get stuff done faster, almost immediately. Um, And once you put in a little bit of time to learn a unit testing framework, it's really going to start to accrue. Uh, That said, I temper my expectations um, around evangelizing unit testing. You know, if you like unit testing, I think our stuff is great, but, um, not everybody's convinced and that's okay. There's, there's lots of different ways to do software development. I
2: definitely, I definitely remember the early days of the skills kit long before it was spoken and, uh, without testing, without unit testing, it's you have to build something, then test it manually and then build it, test it manually. And, and unit testing really just speeds up that process so much.
1: Yeah, I, uh, for me, it was one of the first things that we put together was the unit testing framework. And it was just um, it was intolerable for me to be sitting there and okay. talking to a device. I mean, I, I think that it's uh, I wasn't sure that unit testing was something or unit testing framework would be widely accepted or useful for people. Um, I just knew for myself that um, it was a huge boom for productivity.
0: So is is that the alternative then without unit testing, you would have to literally deploy your code, get it onto a device and then speak at it. Uh, obviously not, not live because you'd probably have it in your kind of like test skills or whatever, but that's the alternative is you would have to deploy everything and test it by actually speaking to it all. That
1: is a really common model that's out there. Yeah. Uh, now there are great things. I mean, I mean, referencing back to the early days. I mean, there wasn't the uh, Alexa test console, for example, which exists now, and you can go in there and you can manually type and interact. I mean, that's that's definitely very beneficial. But you still have to deploy stuff. You know, you have to deploy out your code, set up your interaction model. Um, so it helps, but it's it's not going to give you the same benefit that just being able to run things locally and using the test is going to do. And there are developers, I'm guessing, that are going to listen to this podcast and hear this conversation. And I will just tell you, look, you really can save yourself a lot of time. Mm I mean, uh, hear me now, believe me very soon, hopefully, it's it's a great benefit.
0: Is there any, um, I think risk is the wrong word but how how accurate is the unit testing you mentioned earlier that accents and all that kind of stuff cause a problem so presumably that's what you would then find out further down the line when you do the end-to-end testing but is there any anything about the unit testing that might kind of is is it 100 accurate like what you see is what you get so to speak
1: Oh, that's a great point. And I, I think um, you need to be doing both and you need to be doing I mean, the activities are not completely discrete from each other. Um, if you just do unit testing and, you know, like, OK, I'm 100 percent done and now I'm going to start doing, you know, real interactions with the device or doing end to end testing, you're going to find some things are not working correctly. You might find that you have to even do some significant rework. Because I have not put together any skill, and I'd be interested to see if Dustin agrees with this, where I, there's always some different limitations or constraints I run into with the interaction model. And I have to sort of work within what it'll give me. And you want to figure those things out early on. Because um, there's going to be some stuff that just does not work quite the way that you would like me. Uh, so you want to figure that out early so that you're not – you know, assuming that you can do certain things with a slot or around uh, the sort the interaction with your user that would just turn out to be impossible. Uh, so it's good to be doing a little bit of both. But I, you know, that said, if you do some basic prototyping up front, I think you can, you know, you can figure out those big issues early on, and then, you know, when you get done with your development and your unit testing, then you get into that sort of optimization issue that I mentioned, and that's just you know, that's where you're living in this AI universe and you just, yeah, optimization is now part of what you need to do. Um, and you just, you're continuously improving, continuously monitoring, um, and looking to make sure that your users have the best possible experience.
0: And you had you mentioned when we spoke last time, we kind of chatted briefly before the podcast and you were talking about, because I know you've been doing some stuff with applause and, and applause do more of the usability testing side of things. Yeah. And you had quite a good kind of, um, I think Dustin, you asked John the question around how, how is your kind of mental model when, when it comes to this stuff and how do you see it all fitting together? And you had a really good point about about the fusion of kind of usability testing and the continuous testing and how all that kind of stuff all these different types of testing kind of can work together I wonder if you could kind of do you remember that or not
1: oh absolutely yeah because we're working very actively with applause or it' um, so I, and that also goes back to my experience doing speech recognition which is just you know we needed to have um I like i'm a huge proponent of automation i would like to think everything in this world can be achieved through automation unfortunately that is not true um and so there is some aspect in which you need to have real users interacting with a system either a production system or you can use crowdsource tools like applause um, for that interaction and you're gathering essentially those interactions that they have And you, you know, one, you just measure, how does it do with real world usage? And that tests, I mean, that covers a whole slew of different scenarios. I mean, you can obviously be testing speech recognition, but you're testing just basic usability. You're testing, um, you know, the sort of NLU performance and like, are people saying what you expect them to say? There's always uh, surprises around that. Um, So there's a whole bunch of scenarios but the best practice that we sort of see with it is you run through those, those cases, you get a lot of users and real world people interacting with it. And then you, you sort of distill that down into core use cases that are then automated. And so there's this really, uh, you know, sort of happy partnership between the two things where you have real world and manual testing that goes on. And then you marry that to your automation system and you just run these iterations to again get to this kind of continuous improvement process.
0: And another thing we mentioned, Dustin asked earlier on whether um AI has made the development easier. And I think you kind of concurred that it that it had, but you also were saying before that AI has made development easier, but it's made testing harder.
1: Yeah. And that, so to be concrete about what what is easier, about it. I mean, the example I like to cite, um, for how it can, uh, can become easier is like the dialogues. Right. And so you can set up a dialogue with Alexa. Uh, I think a good example is like a a travel experience where the dialogue is, where are you leaving from? What time are you leaving? Where are you going to? Um, and, uh, when are you returning? Right. And so those are all the questions a person needs to answer. And if you were doing that in a mobile app or on a website, even though it's not that much data, actually capturing all that correctly, like having the correct field for a calendar and, you know, you've got two calendars for, you know, when are you leaving, when are you coming back and you've got to do validations, like making sure they don't choose a return date. that's uh, actually before, the departure date and if they change the before date in the middle of the interaction then you know you got to revalidate i mean it's it's really rather remarkable how complex a seemingly simple piece uh a functionality like that can become uh with the dialogues the idea is you just say i need these four pieces of data here's some questions for how to elicit that information from the user but you can start with something broad based like tell me about your trip and then the system will figure out based on what information they provide, you know, maybe they say, uh, I'm going to London next month. Right. And so you've got some amount of data right there and then you fill in, you know, the system goes and gathers the additional data that's needed. Um, if you've used this, it doesn't work perfectly, but it's, it's a very, it works well and it's very promising. Um, You know, those sort of um, seemingly simple sort of data gathering tasks are really actually rather complicated to program. I personally hate programming because they're one of those things, they take really long, nobody ever gives you credit for it. It takes a long time to do it well. And when you do it well, everyone just says, well, duh. (laughs) You know, like how hard was that? It's like, well, it was actually pretty hard. Um, And they'll definitely notice if it doesn't work well, you know, if your calendar widget isn't right. So anyways, it makes stuff like that easier. But then, okay, well, how do you now know that that dialogue is working correctly? How do you know that it's actually uh, capturing that input from users with a variety of different languages, accents that might ask for it in different ways? That's where, okay, our coding got easier, but our testing got harder. And we need to do more work around that. And it almost becomes like, look, if you're leveraging that piece of the AI, I'm not going to say there's no work to be done in the code. There is. But over time, we do see less and less code having to be written. And it becomes more of a focus of like, look, did we specify that dialogue correctly? Um, and, uh, and doing that testing piece.
0: And before we wrap up on the testing side of things, Dustin, any, any further sort of questions for John on, on the testing side of stuff?
2: Uh, Not so much on the testing side, but I am interested in hearing a little bit more about what uh, Bespoken did with Mercedes-Benz. I saw that there was a case study on your website.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So that's that's our flagship customer. Uh, We're really uh, pleased to be working with them and also pleased to put out that case study. Uh, We are working with their R&D team uh, that's based in California. And it's their connected car experience. So the idea there is you're sitting, having coffee in the morning and you, it's a cold day. Um, and so, you know, maybe it's, it's raining outside in London. And so you say, uh, Alexa tell Mercedes me to turn on my car or to start the, uh, auxiliary heat and it'll warm up your car then. Right. Uh, So that when you actually finish your cup of coffee and go outside and get ready to drive to work, it'll already be, uh, you know, nice and cozy in your car. Uh, It's, it's a really neat use case. Um, You know, overall, we just see this sort of use cases around connected cars as well as in cars, great applications for voice Um, and Mercedes, um, you know, it's, similar to other car manufacturers, they see voice as really essential to their future. So they wanted to make sure that that skill, and it's also uh, Google Action, uh, is basically working perfectly. And we worked with them, not just to implement all the different pieces I described there uh, around unit testing, end-to-end testing, and continuous testing. We did do all those things. But then we also tied it together into this complete automation work. Um, and so total automation is not something that everybody wants to do, but it is a great thing. And so you can tie it into systems where it's like, okay, every time a developer makes changes, let's automatically run all our regression tests. And then if the regression tests pass, then we'll go ahead and do a deployment, you know, into a test environment and the QA people can get it. And if they, if it gets through the next, next benchmark, then we'll automatically push it into production and run smoke tests you can automate all those things. And that's what we did there. And, uh, you know, we think it's an amazing use case and, it, uh, to us is, is the state of the
0: art of what can be done with testing and automation, uh, for voice. And is, is that live now then? Is it?
1: It is. I mean, there is skills been out there for some time and all the, the testing pieces that we put together. Um, you know, we did that work actually, uh, back in the, uh, over the winter really. Um, but then we just published a case study this summer.
0: So now I just need to find a Mercedes. Is it only, is it only certain models? I'm assuming it's like what the new model or something like that, is it?
1: I, uh, I should know the answer to that, but I don't, (laughs) I think it's supported by a lot of their models. I mean, uh, um, it's, it's not just new models. It's not like just 2018. Um, you know, and it's, it's pretty amazing, actually, if you just think about what's involved in saying, you know, Alexa, turn on my car. I mean, it's, it's easy to say. If you sit down and think about what's necessary to achieve that technically, it's, it's quite a feat. Uh, I mean, our part in it is actually rather small. I mean, we're just making sure that basically uh, Alexa did, in fact, understand that command correctly. Um, all the other pieces that go into ensuring that it works right um, you know it's it's uh it's a big undertaking for mercedes and it's it's pretty remarkable that you can do that with you you know with vehicles
0: mm. there's a guy down the road about three doors down He's got a Mercedes it's probably about six months old and I'm pretty sure it's a hybrid it says something blue, blue tech or something mad like that. It's like, it's really, really nice, but I'm absolutely convinced that that is going to, it must have something like if, if any car, if any Mercedes car is going to have that working in it, it'll be this one. It's honestly, it's absolutely immaculate. So I might go and give him a knock during the week and see if we can, <laughs> I'll take, I'll take my echo around and see if we can uh, start firing up his car. Well, for yeah, time. and then
1: be on look at they, their new in-car experience is called MBUX. Um, you know they've they've put a lot of energy into building this great in dash voice based experience that that blends together a really nice graphical display and then um, voice driven you know essentially operating system that's built into the the uh, the car and uh, it's awesome I mean I um, I don't own a Mercedes I wish I did <laughs> but I I mean I I do think that. That's sort of functionality. I mean, like that's a differentiator when you're buying a vehicle now, right? I mean, at least for me, it's like I don't I don't really look at the horsepower that much. For me, it's like, oh, you know, what's it compatible with? You know, how does the uh, – what sort of voice operating system does it use? Those are things that, that for me are buying differentiators.
0: I would agree with that. Like, I think cars got to a point, didn't they, where – You know, all the cars are more or less the same, and then they started kind of like trying to get a sneaky competitive advantage in like in silly ways. Where like the car we got, it's actually pretty frustrating. It doesn't have a CD player, and you've so you've either got the radio or you need to Bluetooth your phone to it, which sounds all cool and all that, but actually, there's two people that drive it. So if if Gemma's been driving it before I have and I get in, I'll go and play, so I'll use Siri and I'll try and play something on my phone, expecting it to connect and it doesn't. And if I've already set off, it's just a nightmare to get your phone connected to it. You'd think, you'd thought it'd just be one button, but you've got to go through all through the settings and it's just like... So cars, I think, have been trying to get themselves a little bit of an edge with little daft stuff like that. And it hasn't, I don't really think it's worked that that much, to be honest, but for something like Mercedes... Having a voice assistant like that that you can you can control things through um, from, through your Echo, I think that actually is it is definitely a competitive advantage. That that would sway my decision making definitely.
1: I, I think it is fantastic, and even so, the use case you're just mentioning. I mean, uh, part of the Alexa Auto SDK that was just announced. Um, you know, and Amazon's working with car manufacturers to get that incorporated. Uh, I believe one of the features is that it's actually got voice recognition. So, you know, wouldn't it be fantastic if, I mean, it, personally I, it would be fantastic if when I get into the car and I say, I want you to play a certain song, if it recognized it is my voice and use my Spotify account, you know, um, and played it from my account. Or if I said play a certain playlist, it knew to hook it up to my account and knows that that playlist is there. And correctly also associated my wife with her account. I mean, this is a very specific concern to me, but like I, I don't like it at the end of the year. I look at like Spotify's like Rewind and I'll see like artists like Michael Bublé on there. <laughs> who, <laughs> mm-hmm. which, I mean, it's, it's offensive to me that Spotify thinks that I listen to Michael <laughs> buble <laughs> <laughs> so I would really like it if they would correctly credit that to my wife yeah. and features like that sort of voice recognition can do that um, I'm not I don't think that's widely available yet but it is coming and it's I, I mean stuff like that I think is just fantastic
0: mm. yeah because then you're also going to get recommendations for other stuff like Shirley Bassey or something like that if they're using Michael Bublé as, as a reference point <laughs> um, so so before we wrap up then, you had some interesting uh, thoughts on kind of where the voice thing is going and, and what's happening well right now, where it's succeeding, where it's not succeeding. And there's all the kind of talk around, you know, in, in the design sort of world, creating conversational experiences and having it a nice, pleasant little thing to talk to and stuff like that. Your kind of perspective is slightly different than that, isn't it? You kind of think it's more a request and response kind of thing. I'm wondering whether you can kind of just elaborate on that a little bit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I am really interested in the user experience aspects of voice and where that's heading. Um, and, you know, it's funny, we see ourselves as kind of the technicians. We're just, you know, we're down here in the engine room making sure that everything's functioning correctly. But interestingly, I do think that testing does have more to say about usability today. I mean, it always has something to say about usability, but it's particularly vital for voice because you know, the speech aspects, languages, and accents and all those things that I mentioned. Um, And our observation, or really my observation about it, is that the best practices that I hear people citing for voice design, I think are running ahead of where the technology is. So I believe that the command and control type of applications, that those are best today. Um and so where is it really succeeding? I think it's you know home automation is fantastic, turning things on and off. Um you know, in the kitchen is great where it's a hands-free type of environment that, that can work very well, though a display is helpful. In the car is essential. Um you know, controlling TVs, I mean to an extent is great. I mean, I don't know about volume up and volume down, but certainly asking for programs works great. Um, but those sort of like, I'm going to give the system a discrete command that it can then fulfill. I believe that that's what the technology works best for. I read with interest, the opinions around how do you do conversational design? Um, and I might be even misusing the term, but I, to me, it's, it's to some extent, at least where things are today, it reeks a little bit of like skew morphism where you're saying, look with, with the skew part. Um, is, you know, you're pretending the machine is a human, you know, uh, the machine's not a human and it doesn't behave like a human and it doesn't have understanding that even begins to approximate a human. So trying to implement interfaces that follow that pattern, I think you're likely to disappoint people. Um, so I take this sort of contrarian view that there's, there's more to be learned from say phone tree applications than there is from our normal human interactions like we're having here.
0: Mm. And where where would you place, you mentioned earlier on around that calendar kind of example and let's and you know book a train or something like that um and that so if, if somebody mentions I'm going to London next week and then you know that they're going to London so then you can ask them for some more information like you know, how much do you want to spend on your room and what location do you want it. So you'd kind of have a a, a series of kind of back and forths to get the system you know, understanding when they want to go, how many people are going to be going, how much they want to spend um, and, how, and how, how long they want to stay there for kind of thing, which you're probably not going to do in one kind of request. So the user's not going to say, I'm going to London on the 30th of March, I want a room for two and I don't want to spend more than £150. So would you class the process of getting that information from somebody would you class that as a conversation or would you class that still as a request and response relationship?
1: No, I do think that that's leading into a conversation. And I think that that's, um, I'm going to steal something from Dustin's book that I've been reading in preview, which is that, I. look, command and control does great and conversation is coming. So I don't want to be this sort of, you know, what I saying it's never going to work for conversation but it's it's good to know what your constraints are and i think if you're trying to have a conversation or if you want your users to have a conversation with machine i think it's really important that it be a conversation in which there is a very much a shared context between your app and the user i think that's where it's most likely to succeed so if we pick on like a travel type of application i think that the shared context there or the, you know, the context is very clear to the user and the type of information that's expected is clear. Um, and the user is very likely to succeed with it. I mean, I, I think we all know what the information is that we need to provide to book a trip. Um, what I think is more challenging and where I, um, I think that the principles of design are less clear is, you know, let's say that you're building an insurance app, and it's, you know, and it's a more customer service type thing. You know, is it there? Good to have it open-ended. Is there enough context? You know, I'm talking to a virtual agent for an insurance company. Is the context obvious enough for a user to know what types of questions they can ask and what type of conversation they can have? I, uh, I don't think it is. And I think that that's where uh, providing more guidance, providing more boundaries for users uh, you don't have to turn it into command and control, but you know, putting those sorts of constraints out there, making them clear, I think is
0: important. Mm. It's framing... Yeah. Sorry, go on, Dustin.
2: Oh, no, I think it's really interesting that you've mentioned now a, a few times the idea of constraints. Uh, there's a, I've seen it several times uh, in art and in design that a lot of times you get your best work when you put constraints on it, when it's not open-filled. And for me, that's what's really interesting about the voice application, the voice first space is we have to work within those constraints. So what kind of creative solutions are we going to come up with?
0: Mm. It's framing the conversation, isn't it? So in that, in that hotel example, the conversation is framed around a task that someone's trying to achieve. You're not going to say, you know, where do you want to go? And the user is going to respond with, you know, how do I treat my Nana's dodgy hip you know the, the conversation is framed do you know what i mean so i think that's that's probably the challenge is how do you frame a conversation from the outset so that in the insurance in the insurance example you were saying there if, if you've got a customer service agent that is just the most open-ended thing possible they could a user can say absolutely anything can so i suppose the challenge is how do you frame the conversation from the outset without making it seem as though Because there's nothing worse than I tried the national rail skill and as soon as it starts it goes, I can set up a commute or I can do this. And it just gives you two options and you think, well, all I want to do is find a train timeout. So it's kind of like seems as though it's restricting you before you've even started. So it's interesting to play around with that idea of how do you frame a conversation so that people don't stray away from the the rules, if you like, without kind of giving them that request and response kind of, um, you know, narrow kind of... Uh, functionality, I suppose.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think it's hard.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So, John, thank you so much for joining us. I, I don't want to let you leave without giving, uh, telling people where they can hop onto your webinars because you've got a few webinars that I've, been, I've joined some of your webinars in the past and I can vouch for them to say that they are definitely informative and definitely worth jumping onto. So you've got office hours as well and you've got other webinars with applause and things like that. So do you want to just tell people a little bit about the, the various things that you're doing and how they can kind of follow Bespoken and, and get involved in what you're doing?
1: yeah absolutely i mean for one thing just go into our website uh bespoken.io um you know we have all the information about you know the software that we provide as well as the different webinars and office hours that we do so that's that's the best source of information um but we do do webinars on a monthly basis on you know a range of different topics almost all related to testing but different different aspects of it um and then we started doing these weekly office hours Um, which I don't mind admitting so far have not been that well attended. So if you're listening to this, you know, come to our our office hours. We do it every Wednesday. And, you know, it's just, it's a nice way to ask us questions, find out about any topic related to testing or voice apps in general. Um, You know, we, we're really interested in helping people and we try to point them to a solution. It doesn't always have to be, uh, our solution um, we're interested in just seeing people succeed
0: with voice fantastic we'll put those links in the show notes we'll stick the, the twitter links and all that stuff down there as well John thank you so much for joining us that was fantastic thank you so much
1: yeah it's a pleasure
0: that was John Kelvey CEO and founder of bespoken what an episode that was, that was absolutely fantastic, getting really into detail on the whole testing side of things. To be honest, I mean, I don't code, so everything I've done and tried and all of the prototyping I've been doing and things like that, it's all been using tools like Storyline because it's just the simplest and easiest way to get something down. And I haven't worked on anything yet, as yet that is wildly wildly complex you know i'm working on an interactive story right now which could get pretty complex but uh, so i've never really had the need to use such advanced testing tools but i can totally see uh, the need for it if you're handling quite a lot of of various intents uh, rather than having to deploy it onto a device deploy all your code onto a device and do all of your testing uh, in real time, in person, um, I can totally see how the unit testing will be a huge, huge bonus. And if you're a hobbyist and you don't do unit testing or you're working on smaller skills, as John said, it might be worth just trying to figure out how it works and just trying to write a few unit testing scripts and see whether, um, whether or not you can get a flavour for it because I can totally see how being able to test your code before you deploy it on your device is, uh, is a real time saver especially for the big skills. And then the end-to-end testing is interesting as well. I think being able just to throw a load of intent at uh, the Alexa service and get all of those responses back and being able to rerun that constantly is such a time saver as well rather than having to sit there and again speaking at the device the whole time. It's far easier, as John said, to automate that stuff if you can. Uh, and then the continuous testing really is almost like it's almost like the equivalent of website analytics monitoring. You know, you don't, for the big websites and the websites that are, you know, either driving revenue or that serving a specific purpose, you'll have a suite of KPIs that you need your website to meet, and you'll be monitoring those on a monthly basis, and if things drop, you'll have a look at it. There'll be certain pages that you're trying experiments on and that you might be kind of monitoring a little bit more closely. So the continuous testing, for me, seems like it's the, the web analytics equivalent in the voice space. Um, and then combining that with the applause uh, usability testing that he was talking about, and mashing all that stuff together, so you get your genuine user feedback on the on the experience side of stuff, um, and then you can mix that together with your automated continuous testing. Um, from there, you'll you'll probably develop new use cases. You'll certainly refine the use cases that you've got, um, and it sets you up for for kind of instilling those practices of testing there's there's nothing worse than just making something deploying it and forgetting about it you know certainly in in this kind of environment where things are changing so quickly um you kind of need to be keeping on top of things and iterating things as well You, you, you know very it's very doubtful that your first stab your first release of a skill or an action or a voice experience is going to be the final product it's very much the beginning of something and, and these things are living breathing things like every digital asset is and it takes looking after and developing and iterating and growing so bespoken sounds and seems like a tool that would be able to help you out uh with that so do check it out uh, and also the webinars check out the bespoken webinars they are really really informative i've been on there on a few of them myself and i can i can honestly say that they are well worth jumping onto. So thank you, John, for joining us. Uh, Immense conversation. Thank you, Dustin, for co-hosting. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, see you later.